0: We are so glad that you are joining us here today. Uh, whether you're joining us online, whether you're joining us here in the parking lot, it is so great to see you and to, to say hi to you and be a part of fellowship here at Heights Christian Church. And right now what we're doing is we're going through a study. And we're going through a study of five years through the Bible. And we're, we're finding ourselves this week in 2 Samuel. And what we have done is we have looked at First Samuel. First Samuel is all about Israel's first king, the rise of King Saul, the fall of Saul, uh, the rejection of Saul, and finally, as we heard last week, the death of, of King Saul, which ushered in uh, David coming in as king. And that's what we began to do this week, is starting to study the first seven chapters of 2 Samuel. And so, there's five things that we can look at in these chapters. Um, And these five, these seven chapters were about five things. Number one is the death of the Amalekites. So at the end of uh, 1 Samuel 31, what we saw was that Saul and David were killed in in an attack. And so what happens at the very beginning of 2 Samuel is that this same attack is kind of retold from the Viewpoint of an Amalekite who came in to bring the crown that Saul had to David. Now, the account that the Amalekite gave was that Saul had fallen on his spear and he was in he was dying, but he wasn't dead yet. And so what he did is he hastened his death and then brought the crown to him. Now, whether this is a true story or whether it's the Amalekites' attempt to gain favor from David, it didn't go down the way that he thought it would go down. He had hoped that he might be considered uh, a hero or somebody who's ushering in David's kingship. But as we learned a couple weeks ago, uh, King David didn't want anything to do with putting anything toward the Lord's anointed. And so he didn't want to attack Saul when Saul was king, and he wasn't going to allow anybody else to attack Saul. So by his own testimony, whether he was doing it for his own glory, or whether he did it to hasten in David's reign, what has happened is he's testified against himself that he's raised his hand against the Lord's anointed. And so as a result of that, David judges him and says, You've said by your own hand that you've raised your hand against the Lord's anointed, and therefore you're going to die. And so we see the honorableness of King David, even in the death of Saul, that he didn't want to raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. Because if he had, then his kingdom would have been set up for intrigue. It wouldn't have been set up for the idea that when God anoints a king, that that king should reign until God has chosen otherwise and so from that we move to the second thing which is a war between the house of Saul and king David for 2 years and Ishbosheth has crowned himself king he hasn't been anointed by god but he's trying to take the succession of king Saul and so over these 2 years period of time we see that David's house grows stronger Ishbosheth's house grows weaker which eventually leads to his downfall and to his death and the the unification of the kingdom of Israel under King David. From there, we look at number three, which is the conquest of Jerusalem. Now, you'll remember, if we go all the way back to Deuteronomy, they entered into the promised land during, during the time of Joshua. And Joshua conquered much of the promised land. And after Joshua was done, the conquest of Israel was not done yet. And through 400 years of judges, the conquest of Israel wasn't done yet because God had allowed the inhabitants of the land to continue to stay in there to test the people and test their faithfulness toward God. As, as, And so what we have in here is this idea that David is still trying to conquer part of uh, this promised land. And so he conquers the city of the Jebusites, which is Jerusalem, which would be called the city of David because he's conquered it. And this is what will be the capital of Israel during this time. And that leads us to number four, which we're going to spend a good amount of time on in, in, this, uh, in our sermon today. It's the ark being brought to Jerusalem. And so what I'd love for you to do is, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Second Samuel chapter 6. As we start looking at this account of the ark being brought into Jerusalem, because the ark was a special manifestation of God among his people. He was said to exist between the cherub, and so this isn't because God isn't everywhere, but this was his special manifestation for the people of Israel to know that his presence was among them. So in 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, there's this great celebration that's going on. It says, David again brought together all the able men of Israel, 30,000. He and all of his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. And they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the Ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. And David and all of Israel were celebrating with all of their might before the Lord, with casanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, cistrums, and cymbals. So there's this great party going on because now they're going to bring the Ark of God into the city of David, which was going to be the capital, which is going to be the center of all of commerce and all of all of what's happening inside of Israel. And so there's this great joy that the ark is going to be brought back because during the time that David was exiled, he couldn't inquire of God with the ark there because he was all in exile, running from Saul. And so now there's this great joy that this special manifestation, the special presence of God promised to the people of Israel was going to be brought where the king was going to be. And the people of God were going to be united under the rule of God. Under the rule of the king who wanted to serve God. And so there's a great joy. They're they're celebrating, they're excited, they're looking forward to what's happening. And then something happens. We look in verse 6. It says, when they came to the threshing floor of Nakron, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down. And he died there beside the ark of God. And then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Giddite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. So what we see is, we see this great celebration turn to tragedy. And this cart that is carrying the ark of God is stumbling And Uzzah reaches out just to settle it. And this isn't a matter of the ark just falling on top of him and killing him. It's a a special outbreak of God causing the wrath of God to come forth because it says this irreverent act is why he caused the wrath of God. And so Uzzah loses his life. And David is both angry because he's trying to honor God and he's scared because he doesn't want the wrath of God breaking out upon his people. And so... He takes uh, the ark to a nearby place, to Obed-Edom's house. And Obed-Edom, because the ark of God is there, it's a manifestation of God who's there, is blessed for the three months that is there. So what is David doing during these three months? Well, Second Samuel doesn't tell us that, but if we read First Chronicles, which is our supplemental reading, we get more of an idea of what was happening during these three months where the ark is is taken back and, and kind of put on hold because David doesn't want to bring the ark into the city of David and bring wrath upon himself if he's handling it incorrectly. And so first Chronicles and Second Chronicles, as we're getting into Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, is a secondary account, much like when we read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we, we get differing accounts, more details in some of the accounts than other accounts. It helps us put a composite together of the whole. So though we, we had it as supplemental reading, I hope you guys are taking the time to read those chapters so you can help fill in some of these gaps of, of things that are happening in the time that we're reading Second Samuel. And so if we look in First Chronicles 15 verses 1 through 4, it says this, After David had constructed buildings for himself in the city of David, he prepared a place for the Ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, No one but the Levites may carry the Ark of God because the Lord chose them to carry the Ark of God the Ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. And David assembled all of Israel in Jerusalem to bring up the Ark of the Lord to the place that he had prepared for it, and he called together the descendants of Aaron and the Levites, and then it lists all of Aaron and the Levites down to verse 11. And it says this in verse 11. And then David summoned Zodak and Abithar, the priests, Uriel, Asaiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Abinadab, the Le- the Levites. And he said to them, you are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place that I have prepared for it. It was because of you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. We did not inquire of him about how to do it in the prescribed way. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves in order to bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel. And the Levites carried the ark of God with the poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. See, so for these three months, what David has done, since God has broken out against them is he he isn't just staying still. He's provided a place for the ark to be there in the city of David. But more than that, he's gone back to research what went wrong. What did we do wrong? What, why did God's wrath break out? Why was it considered an irreverent act for Uzzah to reach out his hand when all they were trying to do is honor God? And the truth of the matter is... There was a way that was told in Leviticus and in Exodus of how the ark was supposed to be handled. And it wasn't obeyed in that way. And we can learn something from that because we get this idea from here that we can't just serve God any way we want. Even David couldn't do that. See, he wanted to honor God, but he wanted to honor God his way. And he didn't seek after what God wanted done with the ark, with the the manifestation of his presence among his people. And therefore, because of his ignorance, Usa ended up losing his life. You know, ignorance is not an excuse for me and you, as believers in Christ, to continue doing what we want. Some people want to use Jesus as a way of justifying their own behavior. They're saying, you know what, I've got Jesus in my life. Therefore, I can now live life on my own terms. And that's never, for, that's never the reason for which Jesus died for us. Jesus didn't die for you, for you to be able to live on your own terms. Jesus died for you that you might be able to do the work that God has always called you to do in his name. That's what he's died for you for. He's died on the cross for your sins to take away that separation between you and God, that rightful wrath that was for you and me. Not so that we could live life on our own terms, but that we will choose to live life on His. This is what we talked about last time that I, that I spoke. When we were talking about Saul, we were talking about David, both saying that they were serving God, but we looked at their works. And Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. For many will say to me, Lord, we did, not, did we not out cast out demons and perform miracles and do all these things, wonderful things in your name? And he will turn to them and he will say, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. In other words, the idea that you and I can just serve God and serve Jesus just the way we want to. And expect God to be okay with it is not found neither in the Old Testament as we're looking here with King David nor in the New Testament with Jesus. And it's important for you and I to understand that while it is true that we are saved by grace through faith as it says in Ephesians chapter 8 and 9. For we are saved by grace through faith, not not of ourselves, not of works. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. But verse 10 says this, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in. In other words, you and I are created for a purpose, to do his will. To do the things he's created us for to do. And By coming to Christ, we have the opportunity to fulfill that, not to fulfill our own selfish desires on doing whatever it is that we want to do. Well, these are the things that we see of David. So David, when confronted with God, being angry with God, he doesn't go back and blame God. He goes back to find out what went wrong. He repents. He turns away. He finds out the right prescribed way. Realize we didn't ask God how we were supposed to do that. We need to correct that. And so he brings the Levites in, in their proper role. And he brings back the celebration that they come back into the city and enjoy a celebration as God wants it to be. And so we continue on in 2 Samuel chapter 6. And it says this, And now King David was told the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And while he and all of Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets, And as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. And they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. And after he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. And then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. And when David returned to home to bless his household, Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, How the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people of Israel. I will celebrate, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes, and I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes, but by these slave girls that you spoke of, I will be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. And so now we see the celebration take place concerning David. And he's so excited because now he's worshiping the way that he's supposed to worship before God. He's bringing the ark back in celebration in such a way that he's supposed to before God. And there's rejoicing and everybody's looking and it doesn't quite have the effect in his household that he hoped that it would. Because he comes home and he's excited. He's excited to bless his household. And he's met with his wife, Michael. Saul's daughter who was given to him in marriage. And she's offended at the way he's acted. Because he's a little too exuberant concerning the Lord. And we see, I think, in Michael a little bit of, of that leftover attitude that Saul himself had. I'm good with being all about God, but not too much about God. Enough to feel like I'm good, but not so much to think that I'm fanatical. And the person who's fanatical is not somebody I really want to hang around because they're taking this God thing too seriously. See, this type of reaction... Is something we were told about by Christ as well, concerning our worship of him, saying, Look, I haven't come to be bring peace, but division among family members. From now on, a father and his daughter are gonna be against one another because of me, and a mother and a son, and a father against his daughter in law, and a mother against her son in law. This will all happen because of me, and he who does not love his son who does not love me more than his son or daughter or mother is not worthy of me. We read that in Matthew chapter 10, verses 32 through 37. And Jesus said, look, this fanatical idea that you're going to be serving me with your life is going to split down your family lines. And David is experiencing that with Michael. And it says a very sad thing at the very end. It says, and Michael was barren the rest of her life. It it basically broke that relationship between David and Michael. Unfortunately for David, he didn't marry just one woman. He married lots of different women. But this speaks to that there was no other relation that happened between him and Michael as a result of this encounter because she was too worried about David being fanatical about God. And it was just too much for David to handle. And so we see her being barren, which is a huge curse because family line was so very important in those days. And so she's cursed with the idea that the person that she's married to, she's now cut off because he wanted to worship God. Some of us may find ourselves in kind of the same position in our families among our friends, the idea that the pressure around us that in order for me to serve God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, all of my strength might make me look strange around somebody else. And therefore, I don't say as much. I don't do as much. I kind of think keep things on the down low so that people don't really know that I'm serving Jesus with my life. We take it safe But we don't see any real change in in any real amazing things that have happened. One of the things that we can say about David is that he totally wanted to attempt to do great things of God. Uh, The title of my sermon today is Attempt Great Things for God. And it's the second half of a quote by a man named William Carey. He's known as the father of modern day missions. And his full quote in in this is, Expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. I want to read you a little bit of his story just so you get an idea of what type of man he was and what pressures he came up against at his time. He was born in the late 1700s. He would live to uh, the 1800s. And it says, at a meeting in a Baptist leader, uh, of Baptist leaders in the late 1700s, a newly ordained minister stood to argue for the value of overseas missions. And he was abruptly interrupted by an older minister who said, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. So as you can see, back then, even the same thing was happening. So we see this man who wants to do great things for God, William Carey, and he wants to go out and preach the gospel to all men, and he's being told by those who are in the Baptist society among his own people that that is too enthusiastic. And William Carey argued that Jesus' great commission applied to all Christians of all times, and he castigated fellow believers of his day for ignoring it. He said, "Multitudes sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinners who to this day are in ignorance, are lost in ignorance and idolatry." And so he would end up moving to India and living there for 41 years. And listen to his early years. It says, Carrie's early years were miserable. And when Thomas uh, deserted the Enterprise, somebody who came with him to start this, Carrie was forced to move his family repeatedly as he sought employment that could sustain them. Illness racked the family and loneliness and regret set in. I'm in a strange land, he wrote. No Christian friend, a large family, and nothing to supply their wants. But he also retained the hope, well, I have God, and his word is sure. He would learn Bengali with the help of a pundit, and in a few weeks began translating the Bible into Bengali and preaching into small gatherings. Kerry himself contracted malaria, and then his five-year-old son, Peter, died of dysentery. His wife, Dorothy, mental health, was deteriorating during that time because of the death of his her, her son? And as he reflected on the times he was going through, he said, This indeed is the valley of the shadow of death to me, Carrie wrote, though characteristically added, But I rejoice that here I am here notwithstanding, and God is here. In December of eighteen hundred, after seven years of missionary labor, Carrie baptized his first convert. By the time Kerry died, he had spent 41 years in India without a furlough. His mission could count only some 700 converts in a nation of millions, but he had laid an impressive foundation of Bible translations and education for future generations. Did you hear how this article put that? His mission could only count some 700 converts, only 700 Think about that for just a moment. If you and I, if we're, our church, about 160 strong, spent our life in such a way where we had 700 people who came to know Jesus Christ. You know what that number would be? It would be 112,000 people. That's an amazing thing. But it only happened with Kerry because he believed... That God would do great things through him if he was willing to take the chance and do great things for God. That he expected great things from God. Therefore, he attempted great things for God. And it takes a resolve to be able to do that, that's not half hearted in nature. That you and I have to be sold out for Jesus in such a way that we see that the best thing that we can do for anybody is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them unashamedly, passionately. Without fear of what will happen to us because we know we want to continue to do great things for God. But just be honest, myself, probably many of you who are out there, we're kind of hesitant, aren't we? You and I are, are, are wanting great things to happen, but not really willing to risk great things happening to us in order to accomplish those things. We want the comforts that we have been so used to around us instead of the obedience that comes through faith that says, Hey, if Christ is lifted up, he'll draw all men to himself. If we really believe that, we should be sharing Jesus with everybody, right? You and I should be trying to do great things for God all the time so that Jesus will be lifted up so that we'll see however many God would have us touch and come to Jesus Christ or be a seed, that little pebble in somebody's shoe about that consideration that they should have for Jesus Christ and the difference that he can make in their lives. If you and I truly believed that, it would change the way that we went about our daily life, wouldn't it? It would change the hope that we would present to our neighbors and to our friends. See, this is the type of faith that David had. Imperfect as he was, he kept going back trying to do great things for God. And as a result of that, we see the fifth thing that happens after this encounter with the ark and bringing the ark uh, into Jerusalem with singing and celebration. David plans to build a permanent house for God. And as he approaches the prophet Nathan and tells him of his plans, Nathan is given instruction by God to go back to David and say, this is an honorable thing. I'm paraphrasing. Now, I've never lived in anything but a tent up until now. Now you're building a house for my name. Because you have done this, there will always be somebody from your lineage on the throne. It is a promise that the Messiah's lineage who's going to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ is going to come from the family of David because of the heart of David. See, we want to be commended by God in such a way, right? But we got to take chances for God in such a way to want to do great things for him, to want to see him transform. And it doesn't Need, need to be 700 people that we convert, but we have to allow God to use us in great ways, unashamedly reaching out in the name of Jesus Christ so that great things can happen because God has promised that he will do much more than we could ever ask or imagine as we read in Ephesians chapter 3, if we'll only trust him for it. If we'll only trust him for him. So when we look at what, why David is a man after God's own heart, it's because he trusted him with much. And we think about the things that he walked through, the confidence that he had. He's chased down by Saul, and Saul's trying to kill him, and he trusts in God's protection through all of that. He's had two years of war with Ifbosheth, and he's trusted God through all of that. He's had Uzzah die because he reached out irreverently, but he trusted God, and he went back and he did things right. The idea that if you and I do great things for God, it's going to be easy is not founded anywhere in the scriptures. That you and I, by doing things for God, are going to put ourselves in some unusual and hard situations that God is going to test us to find out whether or not we're going to continue to be faithful. And when I read the story of William Carey and I see how it mirrors that of King David, it's astonishing to me. He loses his five-year-old son. He loses, you know, the 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 mind of his, his wife and still cares for it. And through it all, he says, but God is still good. His word is still true. And you and I are living in a culture right now where many who would profess the name of Christian will give up on Christ for a whole lot less than that. And you and I need to learn how to be steadfast in the culture where we're living in. Steadfast in the promises of God through Jesus Christ. Steadfast in trusting that Jesus truly is risen from the dead. And his promises are the ultimate truth. Not this reality, but for which we think we're living in right now. Because the world and its desires are passing away, but he who does the will of God will live forever. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that? Believe it in such a way that you were willing to proclaim it no matter what it costs you for the rest of your life. This is what it means to attempt great things for God. Because we have confidence that we can expect great things from God. My challenge for you today, whether you're watching online Whether you're watching here in the parking lot, my challenge for you today is to begin to live unashamedly for Jesus Christ as someone who will attempt great things for God, who will be willing to go through hardship, whatever God brings your way, and still hold on to the confidence that Jesus Christ is still on the throne. You want to see change in our city? You want to see change in our community? You want to see change that will affect the lives of your family? and your friends, then it has to come from an unwavering conviction from you and from me that Jesus is Lord. And apart from Him, there is no other who could grant salvation, who can change the course of history, who has a place for you and me prepared in heaven, and that this place that we're living right now is just practice. It's a shadow land for the place that He's preparing for us. And we need to live that way. In that reality, if we want to see the change that Jesus wants to bring to every single person that He's bought on the cross with His blood and proven His power over sin and death with His resurrection, when you and I have that as our internal focus of everything that we do, God will be able to start doing some great things through you. Not through the world's ties, not through grandeur, one life at a time being changed for Jesus Christ because you were willing to take a chance, because you were willing to do something because of your conviction of Christ. May you and I be challenged to reach out to this generation unashamedly, that we would want to say that we have 700 people who have come to know Jesus because we were unashamedly willing to sell everything out for Him. I don't know what number that's going to be for you and me, but may we not be able to stand before the throne of God and say that we were not trying to be faithful. Do you pray with me? Lord God, we want to thank you. Thank you for today. We want to thank you for the example of David, Lord. Who sold out for you. So sold out for you. That he was willing to do anything to make your name great. God, I pray in the name of Jesus that you, that you give us the passion and the strength. The conviction to be able to do the same thing. Because Lord, our culture doesn't want to hear it. Our culture wants to shut us up about Jesus. Doesn't want to make the name of Jesus great. Would rather us be quiet about it. Would rather us cower. When we have the King of Kings and Lord of Lords on our side. Who's conquered sin and death and the grave God, that you would give us the confidence that we can walk in the truth of Jesus Christ no matter what it costs us because what is gained by sharing Christ to the world around us is greater than anything we could lose. Lord, may your name be made great by our lips, Lord. And may many people, as a result of this, come to know of Jesus Christ because you want to use us In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. I pray that you guys will live a little bit differently this week. And I pray through the grace of God, through the courage that God gives you, you will share Jesus Christ unashamedly. God bless you guys. Have a great week.